are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Here's Nate. 1 and 2 Samuel are incredible books in God's Word to study. Samuel, of course, is in one sense the last of the era of the Judges. Uh, There were various figures that God would raise up, these judges who were, in effect, heroes in the nation of Israel, godly men and a woman who God used to deliver the nation from their spiritual lethargy. And Samuel, in one sense, was the last of the judges. After him would be the era of the kings, and he's going to be the one to introduce us to that kingdom age in uh, Israel. Uh, the book of First Samuel is an incredible book because it shows us Samuel, uh, Saul, Saul's son Jonathan, and of course introduces us to the great king of Israel, David himself. So we will learn much from their examples, uh, see what their life was like, what their priorities were, their victories and their failings here in the book of First and Second uh, Samuel. Now, in one sense, you could say that the theme of First and Second Samuel is the sovereignty of God. But you could really say that over the course of all of the historical books in the Old Testament, God is unfolding his plan of redemption on earth. And in Samuel, you go from the prophetic kind of realm, the judge kind of realm, the priests as the spiritual leaders moment in Israel's history to the kings as the leaders. But especially once you get to Second Samuel chapter 7, you see God's promise that there would be a, a, a man, a Messiah, a king, an anointed one to sit upon the throne forever and ever from the line of David. And so in one sense, you're seeing God's sovereign hand in unfolding the events of history to get his son into the world to be the atonement, uh, the mercy seat, the great sacrifice for mankind so that we might be saved. Now it tells us here in verse one, we begin this story very simply. It says there was a certain man of Ramah Thaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And so we begin first with a man. His name was Elkanah. We get his history, his uh, lineage, uh, which at first glance, when you see that Elkanah is from Ephraim, might be slightly troubling because his son is going to be Samuel, and Samuel would serve as a priest, which was an office reserved exclusively for Levites. But we learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 6, especially, that Elkanah was a direct descendant of Levi and qualified to function in a priestly capacity. It's just that we get a listing here in verse 1 of where he lived and uh, the town from from which he, or in which he resided. Now in verse 2, we get the problem of the story. It says that he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah, 
And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this, of course, is a concept that takes a little bit of explanation uh, for us. Here we are humming along in Scripture, and we get to this moment where you've got this man named Elkanah who had two wives. Now, one thing that's important to mention is that he is actually the only commoner in the books of Samuel and Kings to specifically be mentioned as having more than one wife. There was polygamy, but it was often reserved for or at least spoken of amongst the kings, those who were nobles and in great authority. He's the only common man uh, listed in Samuel or Kings to have had more than one uh, wife. And so it's important for us to see here that just because it's mentioned doesn't mean that God instituted it or favored it. Polygamy was never instituted by God and in fact always caused strife, difficulty, and problems. When you read Genesis chapter 2 and you see the initial marriage, it becomes very obvious, though not overtly stated, it becomes very obvious though to see that God desires for one man and one woman to come together in marriage Till death do they part in covenantal relationship with one another. A man is to leave his father and be and his mother and be joined to his wife. Unfortunately, polygamy was the practice of the nations that surrounded Israel. And so Elkanah borrowed this practice from the pagan nations. Probably what happened is that he'd married Hannah. It's very obvious from the text that Hannah is his favored wife. But after a while, realized that she was barren and would not yield him an heir. And so he adopts an ungodly practice, justifying it uh, because of his need for offspring. This is fascinating to me because as a pastor, I see how quickly people will abandon a clear biblical mandate for practicality's sake. It is so much better to cling to obedience, cling to the Lord. Who cares whether you think it's practical or not? Obedience to the Lord is always the better option. Elkanah compromised uh, and I'm sure justified it by saying, well, you know, I've got to have a child. But this is where the big conflict came in. So a great difficulty caused by this polygamous family. Peninnah had children, but Hannah, she was barren. She had no children. But what we'll discover here in a moment is that she had no children for a reason. Now this man, verse 3, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So year by year, Elkanah would go up to Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle resided at that moment. And he would worship the Lord. Uh, there and offer sacrifices to him. And this was, of course, the responsibility of all of the men 
in Israel each year, three times a year. All the Israelite men were required to go to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, and offer their sacrifices during these main religious festivals. And so Elkanah was obedient to the Lord, and he would go up and sacrifice, but he perhaps uniquely would bring his wives with him and would give them sacrifices to offer to the Lord, and he would give a double portion to Hannah because of the love that he had uh, for her. Now, it's good to at least notice, these men will come up later in the story, in verse 3, the priests that were serving, two sons of the high priest Eli, their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And these would be the men who would eventually be replaced by a son that God would miraculously give to Elkanah's wife, Hannah. And so it says in verse 6, during this scene, during these sacrifices and going up to Shiloh to worship the Lord. It says that her rival, verse 6, the rival of Hannah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. In other words, Peninnah, the other wife, would provoke and ridicule the barren wife who was obviously more loved by the husband, Hannah. She would provoke her. Therefore, Hannah, as a response to this, wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? A couple of things for us to take note of in this short paragraph. Number one, notice that the two wives became rivals against one another. This would be expected in a polygamous family, of course. Two people, two women, fighting for a position that only one can rightfully and honestly hold. They were warring over one position to be Elkanah's true Wife, And I think that quite often, this is a great picture for us as believers, because quite often we are guilty of spiritual polygamy. We want the Lord, but we also want the world. And when we put our feet in both places, there is a rivalry that ensues. Jesus said we can only serve one real master uh, in our lives. A man cannot have or operate with two masters. So we should be a people who make sure our allegiance is devoted to one, that there is no rivalry inside of our lives. This is why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. The loving of God, placing him as the priority so that there is no rivalry. But notice secondly, that it tells us in verse six that the Lord had closed her womb. In other words, the scripture is giving God the credit or the blame, depending on how you look at things, for the closing of Hannah's womb. Now, God had closed her womb for a reason. You see, God had a situation. Here he is. We know from 2 Corinthians 16 verse 9, the eyes of the Lord look to and fro. He's looking for people to show himself on strong on their behalf. 
He's looking for that next judge, so to speak. You know, who would be raised up after an era filled with men like Gideon or Samson when he was walking with the Lord, men like Jephthah, men like Barak, who would rise up and take that kind of mantle in the nation of Israel? And apparently there was no one that God deemed sufficient for that role. He would need a child. He would need a new man in order to, you know, create that kind of judge, that kind of leader that he was looking for. And so what he needed or what he desired was for there to be a woman who would give her child the Lord, but also give her child to the Lord. And in order for Hannah, who was a godly woman, in order for Hannah to come to a place where she'd be willing to give her son away to the service of the Lord, she would have to come to a place where her barrenness brought her to a place where she'd be willing, if God would give her a son, she would be willing to let her son go. God was closing her womb so that he could use her life in bigger ways. This trial in her life was there for a wonderful reason. As James said in James chapter 1, let the steadfastness that you acquire through trials as you walk through them in Christ, let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And and she was going to go through a process here where this major trial in her life, she was going to let it have its full effect in her life. And God was going to reward her richly for her obedience to him. So Elkanah comes on and sees all of this sadness coming from Hannah. He asks her a few questions. Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? And I love that there is no answer recorded. Sort of awkward silence after Elkanah asked that question. Hey, aren't I greater to you than 10 sons? And no response from Hannah. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So there they are. They're worshiping the Lord, offering their sacrifices. They're there for this religious festival. Hannah goes up to the temple of the Lord, the tabernacle. And she's there. And Eli the priest is there, sitting beside the doorpost. She, verse 10, was deeply distressed. This was just a deeper emotional, depressed moment in her heart as she went through this trial. The provoking of Peninnah was just growing so strong. She's distressed and she, verse 10, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is so wonderful because what you see here, number one, is that her emotion drove her to God, drove her to prayer. So often, I think, when people enter into trials, they run from the Lord rather than running to the Lord. But that was Hannah. She ran straight to the Lord in this moment of bitterness and distress. Secondly, it's wonderful to see that this woman understood that it wasn't conversation with Elkanah, with her husband, that would help her. 
A husband should be a good man, have an open heart, be willing to listen to his bride, love his bride through conversations and through an open heart. But on the other hand, a woman should understand, a husband or a wife should understand that their ultimate fulfillment is going to come from God himself. There are people that we can run to in life, but none of them have the power, the strength, the authority of God himself. People cannot solve your issues. Go to God. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. And so uh, Hannah weeps bitterly, prays before the Lord. And in this moment of prayer, she said the thing that God was desiring for her to say. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. This vow was the thing that God was waiting for inside of Hannah. He wanted to give her a child only after she made this covenant with God. Now, she's basically making what we would refer to as a Nazarite vow for her future son. This is alluded to when she says, no razor shall touch his head. That's one part of the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. The rest of it is that they would obtain, uh, abstain from the use of grapes in any form, especially and including wine. And they would also avoid dead bodies in all their forms. This was part of that Nazarite vow. And so she's saying, listen, he'll be set apart for you. I will give him back to you. He can be used by you. He'll belong to you. He'll serve you in the temple. I will give him to the Lord. And that's the exact thing God longed for her to say. Now, as she continued praying before the Lord, verse 12, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's interesting for a sad reason. In that here is Eli, a man of God, a priest, in the house of God. He sees a woman praying silently, and his first assumption is not that she is praying with a bitter spirit, but that she is a drunken woman. It says something rather low and poor about Eli, and uh, something rather disgraceful, I think, also about the state of the nation at that present time. But that would be the first reaction of the high priest in seeing a woman praying silently before the Lord, thinking that she must be drunk. It's a referendum on the sad state of the nation of Israel at that moment in time. But it also is a wonderful thing for us to consider when we consider prayer in and of itself. Her prayer was silent, but her lips moved. Her prayer was silent, but she was, verse 13, speaking in her heart. You know, she was saying her prayer where it truly 
counts in her heart. Even though her words were silent before the Lord, she was truly praying before God. You know, I love to pray out loud. It's just been helpful to me over the years. But it's not the verbalization out loud of a prayer that makes it effective. It's that it's truly there being spoken from the heart. I love what I heard one person say. They said, you know, you need to pray until you've prayed. And as a praying man, I understand exactly what that means. There's the form and the function of prayer, but then there's that moment where you're carried along by the Spirit of God and you are praying in line with what God desires for you to pray. You're being led by the Spirit even as you are crying out to the Lord. Hannah responded to Eli's accusation in verse 15 and answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's her definition of a drunkard. 4 verse 16, all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. A beautiful thing that she actually says. It's actually quite clever what she's saying because she says, listen, I'm not drunk off of spirits. I'm troubled in spirit. I haven't consumed and had wine and strong drink poured into me. I've been pouring out, she says, my soul before the Lord. What a beautiful description of prayer. And Eli answered her in verse 17 and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and, and here's what tells us that she believed the word of Eli when he said, the God of Israel grant your petition. It says that when she went her way, she, verse 18, ate for one, she broke her fast and her face was no longer sad. The faith of Hannah is astounding to me. She gets one word from this priest and she believes fully that God has heard her prayer, that God has received her sacrifice. I don't even know if Eli was serious or not, but she received it as a deep promise from God himself. And she rejoiced. They rose early in the morning, verse 19, and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew, romantically of course, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the name Samuel sounds a lot like in Hebrew, the phrase heard of God. Technically, it the name simply means his name is God or something similar to that. But it came to mean asked of God. And that was Hannah's understanding of Samuel's name. I asked God for him and God heard me. His name will be called Samuel. Heard of God. Asked of God. And I've often seen married couples who have not been able to have a child or have experienced 
miscarriages or the death of a child. And when they have a son, they name him Samuel. Asked of God. The Lord opened our womb. The Lord blessed us. She said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So often, this is the key. We just need to ask the Lord. And Hannah had asked of the Lord. Now the man Elkanah in all his house, verse 21, went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice. So again, the time has come for the sacrifice to be given and to pay his vow. But Hannah, verse 22, did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So Hannah says, listen, you know, it's no use giving them uh, a baby. That wouldn't really be a gift of any kind. Let's wean the child. And uh, once he's grown, then he'll appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, wonderfully said in verse 23, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Elkanah wanted to make sure that this really occurred. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. So he would grow up a little bit. And, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be 37 years old or anything like that. He'd still be a very young child. And, you know, he would eventually grow and it wouldn't take that long. But she would, he would be then dedicated to the service of the Lord, which I think speaks to the truth that Paul communicated in 2 Timothy concerning the requirement, or of 1 Timothy, I should say, concerning the requirements of pastors, one of them being that they should not be a novice lest they be puffed up in their own minds. They need to be weaned. They need to be uh, men who have grown past the milk and are able to handle the meat of God's word, faithful, mature kind of men. And so she gives plans on giving Samuel to the Lord permanently once he has been weaned. Then in verse 24, it says that when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. The age really isn't given. The bull is three years old, so some have uh, suspected that Samuel was three years old as well, and that this bull was a uh, type of replacement for the years that he uh, wasn't present or wasn't there. The child was young, though. And they slaughtered, verse 25, the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. She's reminding him. Verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. I love the way Hannah thinks about this particular handoff. She says, I'm lending him to the Lord, even though she also confesses, really, as long as he's alive, he is lent to the Lord. She is giving her son to the Lord. I think in one sense, this is a great reality for every parent of any child who is in the faith, any parent in the faith, 
should have this same perspective to realize my children do not belong to me. They belong to the Lord. I've got to give them the gospel. I need to teach them concerning their heart and what is off in their heart and their deep need for the gospel. I want to shape them as weapons in the hands of the Lord, but ultimately they belong to the Lord. Hannah took her child and gave him to the Lord. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.